Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on September 5, 2018, discussing selected issues from the proposed Section 965 regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PwC tax partner and leader of our specialty practices, and Rebecca Lee, Elizabeth Nelson, and David Sotos, all PwC tax partners in our international services tax practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on anti-abuse provisions and PTI issues under the proposed Section 965 regulations. Have a listen. With that, why don't we move into the anti-abuse provisions? And David, I'm going to come back to you to lead the discussion through some of the issues you see here. Yeah, here, here again, this is something that uh, was covered in, in the prior webcast, but again, it's a Dash 4 rule, uh, and unlike the, the other Dash 4 rule that dealt with the specified payments to resolve double counting, uh, these provisions are designed to address, uh, you know, through the authority of 960-0, uh, the ability of the government to curtail what are what are abusive uh, or perceived to be abusive transactions, um, and and they they really are are based upon the uh, presumption of, of the transaction being occurring after generally after uh, eleven two measurement date and being undertaken with a principal purpose uh, of trying to change a nine sixty five element, which is either the cash position, the E and P position. Uh, whether it's reduction of EMP or an increase in a in a deficit co, um, or an increase in the amount of foreign tax credits that could be claimed, um, and and the regulations pretty much uh, set forth what is what is in the notice 2018-26 with some modification uh, of addressing things as a, a 965A element rather than the 965A tax liability. Um, and so if, if a transaction, uh, you know, has a presumption, uh, and, and in some cases the, 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 there need not be a principal purpose of, uh, of trying to change an element, uh, for example, for accounting method changes and entity classification elections, you're just kind of, you're stuck. The, the rule applies. And, and the scope of the rule again, is important here um, because it applies for determining the U.S. shareholders, all of the U.S. shareholders 965A elements, which again are the cash position, the the EMP, and the foreign tax credits. What it where it doesn't, where it stops is 965. And after the determination of those 965 elements, it does not apply more broadly for purposes of the code. Um, and so what you're left with then is, is how do you apply this fiction to various uh, uh, scenarios where there is a, uh, and we're going to get into one here in a minute with an entity classification election, mm-hmm. but how do you apply that and, and how does it interact with the rest of the code where you're supposed to, that transaction is actually respected. Um, and, and after the 965 in, inclusion year, you know, that, that uh, is, is carried out. If an entity made a disregarded election, it is disregarded, et cetera. Um, and, and that creates a, a, a bit of uncertainty. Uh, and we're going to illustrate here in the next slide just one of those that has uh, come up. Um, and, and it involves a structure here where it, it's very simple. It USP owns CFC1, which owns CFC2. And CFC2, after 11-2, makes a retroactive check-the-box election 
that's effective prior to 11-2. So as of the 11-2 measurement date, CFC-2 is actually a disregarded entity of CFC-1. Um, and, and so it was not in existence on 11-2 or 12-31, uh, absent the application of this rule. And CFC-2, as a disregarded entity, receives an amount or earns some income that we'll just assume is subpart F income. Uh, that is subpart F income to CFC-1, and it would be subpart F income to CFC-2 if it were in existence. Um, the, the disregard transaction or entity classification rule would come in and say, because there is a, and we're assuming here, a change in a 965A element in the sense that CIA, by reason of this election, uh, for example, more foreign tax credits might be able to be claimed. Uh, they, they might be brought up from a, an entity that is outside of the qualified group and now in the qualified group and therefore can be claimed. Um, so if we assume that, now we have to, for all purposes of determining the 965A elements, assume as if the disregarded entity election is not effective. So CFC2 is in existence. Um, the question then is, does it receive the payment that is otherwise, or the income that otherwise is generated on 11.15? Are we, how, how far do we take this fiction? Um, does it now have EMP as of 12.31 because of the 11.15 transaction that it didn't otherwise have? Um, and, and if we just assume for a second that that is the case, then it has a 965 uh, you know, A income. But now the question is, well, that income, if it, were, if it had been recognized by CFC2, would have been subpart F income. So do we now, because of the ordering rule, as, as Elizabeth went through, the first step is to determine the SF, each SFC's subpart F income. Do we now apply that? that ordering rule and say, well, that's subpart F income, so therefore it's effectively going to be PTI and pulled out of the, the 965A inclusion, or, or do you not apply that? Um, and, and what do you do for the actual payment that was received for all other purposes other than 9, 965, for, for 954, for 951, CFC1 received the amount. And if it has subpart F income, and CFC2 has subpart F income, you've had a, a double inclusion. I mean, you have a lot of issues here that are coming up um, as to you know, how you apply this fiction uh, that, that I think need to be resolved. And, and I think that the, uh, you know, the, right now, the, there's just not sufficient guidance uh, to resolve this. And, and I think that absent that, I, I think taxpayers at least have a, have a uh, flexibility to apply this rule, apply the ordering rule, and in this case, say that, for example, CFC2 did receive the income, you have to apply the ordering rule, it's subpart F income, whatever credits it got, it gets, you know, without haircut, um, and, and, and then 965 obviously would not apply because everything would be PTI in that entity. Uh, I, I don't see that as, as an unreasonable position, although, again, who knows whether the government will address this, but this is the kind of issue that comes up. Yeah, and there's so many micro issues that come into play here with the differing measurement dates that are out there, different fiscal year ends that are out there. It's it's mind numbing from a standpoint of the challenges that I'm sure people have just trying to plug the gaps here. Yeah. All right, with that, why don't we pivot over into how these anti-abuse rules might apply in some cash reduction transactions? And Rebecca, I'm going to ask you to walk us through our thoughts here. 
Sure thing. And and I'll give a light touch on the next two rules because David did a nice job of touching on each of them in the course of discussing the example. So one category of anti-abuse rules relates to cash reduction transactions. And they kind of break the world into two buckets. They sort of say, in general, not all cash distributions are per se undertaken with the principal purpose of reducing a 965 element. That sounds good if you stop there. But they create a subcategory of specified distributions that are per se treated as having a principal purpose of changing a 965 element. And that has a very broad definition. Uh, and one of the things that bothers me about this definition is the idea that it relates to any transaction where there was a plan or intention for the distributed to transfer cash, accounts receivable, cash equivalent assets, et cetera. And I think we know as tax people how to navigate rules where there is a plan to do something. Um, I think the or intention language is certainly giving um, clients a, a fair amount of pause because how do I go about implementing that or determining what I had an intention? And for that matter, um, these aren't going to be audited necessarily in real time, even for our, cap, our clients who are part of the CAP program. So how do I go back and assess multiple years later whether a transaction had the intention? Um, and most importantly, there's no exception for ordinary course of business transactions. So particularly being a financial transactions person, uh, if you have an obligation to repay a loan and the loan repayment date hits between the measurement dates, and I would either have to violate the terms of my legal agreement calling into risk whether I was actually treating it as indebtedness for all U.S. federal income tax purposes, or I could make the payment and have a specified distribution, that seems like a really difficult choice for clients to make and is an illustration of some difficulties applying these rules. If we switch and we look at elections and accounting method changes, as opposed to on the prior slide where we talked about transactions where you weren't per se viewed as having um, a principal purpose of reducing a 965 element, the rule for accounting method changes and elections is a per se rule. Any change in method of accounting, any election is made that would change any 965 element is treated as being subject to the anti-abuse rule. Um, and this includes, again, if we're highlighting like the most sympathetic fact patterns, this includes where you're going from an impermissible method to a permissible method. So purely for 965 purposes, they're going to keep you on your impermissible method. By the way, I think by implication, if you're going from one permissible method to a number of permissible method, I think you're probably in the rules too. And similarly, it disregards any entity classification election filed after 11-2, regardless of its effective date, which could have been effective earlier in the year, if it changes a 965 element. So a lot of year-end planning that maybe uh, folks are taking a second look at, but more importantly, where this comes up in my practice is folks who are doing normal course transactions or were making accounting method changes because of issues that were highlighted on an impermissible method, making the change how you normally would, and in many cases, changes that might have been automatic accounting method changes. Purely for 965 purposes, I have to go back and sort of imagine a world where I didn't make that election. And because this is only for 965, I'm stuck with situations where I'm treated as having made an effective election or classification um, election or accounting method change for all other purposes, so I might get the worst of both worlds. Yeah. And, and this was a really, really thick hammer sort of coming down in this situation. Mm -hmm. And to your point, it was not unusual that companies might have been waiting till later in the year to make otherwise normal accounting method changes, mm -hmm. elections, things like that. So this, this was one I know that was, was fierce on, on organizations. Elizabeth, I'm going to come to you now, and we talked a little bit about principal purpose. You want to talk about sort of rebutting that principal purpose, son? So we have gotten questions about when when do you file a rebuttal, when you're required to file a rebuttal. 
Um, so as David kind of went over, if you have um, a transaction that occurs in whole or in part on or after 11-2 is undertaken with a principal purpose to change a Section 965 element and would change the Section 965 element, you're in these disregard rules. So that's the general rule. And then certain transactions, um, one of which Rebecca discussed, the cash reduction transactions, are presumed undertaken with a principal purpose of changing a 965 element. And then within those transactions, there are per se transactions that are per se undertaken with a principal purpose, um, as well as the accounting method and check the box selections, which are per se. All of them are per se. So there is the possibility, though, to rebut whether you have um, a principal purpose um, if the facts and circumstances establish that you didn't have a principal purpose. And that requires you to file a statement with your return, um, including the rebuttal. And we've had the question, when do you actually have to file that? So it appears from the proposed reg wording that you would file that when you're in a transaction where there's a presumed principal purpose. So you have a cash reduction transaction, you have an E&P reduction transaction, or a pro rata share transaction, where it's not a per se transaction within those categories, where you would then file a rebuttal to rebut the presumption that you had principal purpose of changing your 965 element. And I would contrast that with a transaction that may not fall into those categories, um, but may meet the general rule that puts you into Dash 4B, but you know that you don't have a principal purpose. I don't think there's a requirement then under the regulations to file a rebuttal, but obviously you want to document in your files why you didn't have a principal purpose of changing the 965 element if it did come up on audit. Great points. All right, why don't we move right along into PTI issues, which I'm certain are not going to get any less complicated. <laughs> So, David, why don't you uh, kick us off and talk about some thoughts related to the, the PTI rules here? Yeah, this is another area that was, was covered on the prior webcast um, and, and where uh, taxpayers have been eagerly awaiting guidance with respect to how deficit offset PTI would be treated for purposes of the foreign tax credit provisions. The answers that uh, we all got uh, with respect to uh, the deficit offset PTI, at least with respect to the 960 inclusion, uh, or the 965 inclusion and the 960 application of 960 um, was that the the foreign taxes associated with the deficit offset could not be claimed uh, in the, as a deemed paid credit. Uh, the regulations then then provide that uh, if withholding taxes are imposed on the distribution of those amounts, uh, at least during the inclusion year, we're still waiting on on going forward, uh, but I would expect that the result would be the same, uh, that the, the taxes that are imposed uh, on either 965A uh, or 965B PTI uh, will be haircut consistent with 965G. Uh, um, there is no rule, however, uh, but uh, I think we understand that the government is thinking about and, and, and is expecting to develop uh, an ordering rule with respect to how amounts are distributed. Now, there are some rules in the existing 959-3 regulations that would, would tell you to look uh, at you know, current year and then prior year on a year-by-year -year basis for determining uh, you know, PTI that is distributed. Um, that is all fine, but now when we have 965A and 965B, uh, the distribution of which may attract taxes uh, and, and 
be subject to a haircut and we have other subpart F income and then we're going to have guilty PTI. You know, we're going to have a lot of different categories uh, and, and the subpart F PTI would not be subject to a haircut. The, the guilty, who knows? And clearly this 965A A and, A and B uh, are. Uh, there is a need for an ordering rule and, and, and we're anticipating that it will be provided in, in forthcoming, forthcoming guidance. Okay, thanks. Rebecca, if you could, you want to make take that into a coordination with gains or loss transactions for 986C, so computing gain or loss on the PTI. Thank God. I thought we wouldn't talk about <laughs> foreign currency. So this is actually a bright spot in this otherwise dreary set of regulations in the sense of there's a proposed reg under 986C. It coordinates sort of how do you pick up foreign currency gain or loss on now this massive pool of PTI that's created from the toll charge. Yeah. And mechanically... You start with your ten, your twelve thirty one um, spot rate as being the starting point for your foreign currency gain or loss, and then you compute your nine eighty six C gain or loss when you actually repatriate your PTI based on, in general, the normally applicable nine eighty six C PTI rules, which I'm sure everyone listening is fully compliant with, and monitors their unrealized and, but there's actually an embedded positive here. So first, you know, you take into account your 986C gain or loss based on the same proportion as your PTI bears taking into account your 965C deduction. In the same way, you apply sort of, you have foreign currency gain or loss under 986C with respect to your 965A PTI, but not with respect to your faux PTI. That makes some sense. One of the biggest questions we get now is ordering. We've been in a declining rate environment in most jurisdictions since the end of last year. So instead of this being a negative or like no fun, um, this is actually becoming a bit of a positive because people have unrealized 986C losses. And all of a sudden this becomes an attribute that you can think about critically the same way you think about any of your other attributes. Um, from an ordering standpoint, there isn't guidance in the 986C rules that were published as part of the toll charge guidance. But we do have old and cold guidance, like the, two, the 1988 notice that tells you about when you're pulling out through multiple pools of PTI, and it generally requires a LIFO approach, which means you pull out from that big, massive pool of toll charge PTI first. Um, and that avoids being cute if you've got some really old and cold PTI sitting there from really way back in the day that maybe has massive losses associated with it. You don't necessarily get to pick and choose, but if you do some modeling, you can at least see where you sit today, knowing that many companies have anticipated repatriations planned, either do share repurchases, to repay debt, or to do a host of other very valid corporate transactions. Thank you. Elizabeth, you want to take on this next section? So this is with respect to interest expense apportionment, and I and I really think this is one of the unintended results of the provisions that work together in 965B4. So 965B4 Cap A, when you prorate deficits, uh, creates 965B PTI in the DFIC to the extent your E&P in that company has been offset by a deficit, and then Cap B has a corresponding E&P increase, which the proposed regs tell us is not current E&P, um, that is increased in the deficit company to eliminate the deficit on a go-forward basis. And so we have what looks like an impact to the E&P bump when you do your interest expense apportionment that was perhaps unintended. So if we look at the chart on the right in this slide, pre-toll charge, we would have had 
in, the, in this fact pattern where we have, we've assumed zero cost basis to the top tier entity, and we would have had an EMP bump, which in that calculation, it allows us to offset deficits against um, positive ENP in calculating the ENP bump. So we would have had zero ENP bump under these fact patterns, meaning we had zero basis then for interest expense apportionment. If we look at the post toll charge column, because of the increase to the deficit company and the fact that we've retained, you know, PTI in the company, and so have all of that, all of that PTI, 965 PTI that would go into the ENP bump, we have now created, if you will, because of this deficit proration, an asset of $10 that would then attract interest expense when you do your interest expense apportionment. It seems like an unintended result of how those two provisions work together, and we're hopeful that they address this in the interest expense apportionment regulations. Okay. Thanks, Elizabeth. And we touched on this on the prior webcast in the opportunity to be doing a basis shift election. But one of the questions that's come up is actually the mechanics of getting the basis shift election done and whether or not it needs to be done on an original return. Can it be done on an amended return? Do you want to maybe walk through just mechanics for people on that? Sure. So it does need to be filed with the extended by the extended due date of the return. And so that's pretty soon for a lot of calendar year taxpayers. And a lot of taxpayers have not had the opportunity because of the late date that the proposed regs came out to evaluate whether it makes sense to make that election. Yeah. Um, in addition, the proposed regs do not allow for relief for late filing. So taxpayers are put in the position where they have to very quickly make a decision about whether they file the election or not. Sure. And so this is one area that I would hope that Treasury would allow for late filing relief or allow for filing of the election on an amended return to give taxpayers more time to evaluate the election. And in the absence of any relief out there, people are put up against trying to do a calculation quickly and make a judgment on it, right? Correct. Okay. Not a great answer for folks to try and work through. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, Please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.